0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the management of acute
1: ischemic stroke. Acute ischemic stroke is a major global cause of mortality and severe disability state-of-the-art acute ischemic stroke care requires a multidisciplinary approach that often includes intensivist and or neurointensivist. Our guest is Dr. Fred Rincon. Dr. Rincon is a neurologist and critical care specialist with expertise in the resuscitation and management of acute brain injured patients. He is professor of neurology at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University and director of the NeuroICU at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Rincon is trained both in medicine and neurology, with dual fellowships in critical care, vascular neurology, and neurocritical care. Since this was not enough for Dr. Rincon, he also completed degrees in neuroepidemiology and and bioethics. Dr. Rincon is a phenomenal clinician, educator, and investigator. It's an honor to have him back on critical matters. Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Sadio. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk about acute brain injury with you, and today we have, I think, an update on a very important topic but maybe we could start with just answering why should intensivists care about acute ischemic stroke?
0: That's a great question, uh, Serg, so and I can give you a couple of reasons. Uh, the 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 main one, right, is because in critical care medicine, you will see twenty percent of neurological injury in your intensive care unit, and most of that neurological injury is going to be vascular. Uh, so you know you know knowing a little bit of ischemic stroke, which is sixty to seventy percent of strokes is extremely important for intensives. The second reason, in my opinion, is there's a sh- shortage of neurologists. So, you know, these patients are coming in, right? You know, patients are getting older. They're getting a lot of risk factors, right? And, uh, uh, you know, that's <laughs> n- n- not changing, at least in our jurisdiction, right? You know, prevention strategies, you know, uh, are, are, are there, but, you know, patients are still having a lot of risk factors, so uh, they're going to have a lot of of, of of ischemic stroke, and there are not a lot of neurologists to take care of them. Much less a stroke urologist. So there's a combination of of of, of things going on um, in, in in the medical field that um, makes me think that critical care physicians should know about this, how to handle it, and you know how to take care of these patients.
1: Excellent. And I think that before we we dive into like more of the management of of acute ischemic stroke. There's two important uh, scales that I think would be worth refreshing uh, our audience memories, and there'll be links in the, in the show notes. In terms of managing acute ischemic stroke patients, one refers to diagnosis and assessment of severity, but has direct implications in uh, treatment, but also how we monitor them, which is the NIH uh, stroke scale. And the other one is more important in understanding how these treatments that we implement Uh, in the the literature have impacted outcomes, and that's the modified ranking score. Could you just give us a little bit of maybe like a 101 on NIH stroke scale and on the modified ranking score?
0: Yes. So those are uh, uh, two different scales uh, that uh, tell you different things. So the first one, the NIH stroke scale, is a scale uh, um, designed to uh, track uh, neurological injury after ischemic stroke. And we have used it not just for ischemic stroke. We also use it for hemorrhagic stroke, and, and you know sometimes people use it for subarachnoid hemorrhages. But in, in reality, it was sort of like coin and and designed uh, to identify the degree of or, or the severity of injury after an ischemic stroke. And it has uh, several realms, uh, you know, twelve uh, you know different realms that assess different uh components of the neurological exam and a trained person can uh deploy a, a neurological uh, assessment with the NIH scale in under uh uh 3 minutes and there th- there are um um centers or or um websites that would help you getting trained and certified in NIH checklist it's extremely easy to get is a certification that perhaps you should think about uh having i don't think there is any you know price tag to it but uh but you could get uh, certified. And it's extremely important because it sort of like, like, like tells you, you know, uh, how bad the, or, or good the patient is. So you can actually categorize people into mild, moderate, or severe strokes on the basis of an NIH stroke scale, up to five considered, you know, to be mild, you know, uh, you know uh, six to 12, perhaps moderate, and more than 13 uh, is usually a bad stroke. And it also helps you tracking the patient's uh, improvement or deterioration, right? So in terms of communication, it's an extremely important tool uh, to uh, predict disability. It also predicts uh, uh, mortality and helps you so like track the patient in the the hospital, you know, for for their admission. Um, As I said, in terms of communication, uh, extremely important, right? Because you are tracking uh, the degree of uh, improvement or deterioration after an intervention. And um, in general, we consider, you know, worsening of of somebody's uh, condition when the NIH stroke scale changes significantly. And we use usually a a point, uh, I'm sorry, a four point change in the NIH stroke scale uh, to consider a significant change in the neuro- neurological exam. It's part of the benchmarks that our stroke centers uh, use, you know, uh, to get accreditation and, and and to track quality improvement uh, you know, programs. So, um, you know, in, in, in the first hours of, of ischemic stroke, you know, you need to document uh, an NIH stroke scale uh, before the administration of thrombolytics or before uh, endovascular thrombectomy and then 6 to 12 hours after uh, the initiation of of, of therapy and then in the neuro ICU you can develop even more sophisticated ways of tracking this i mean you you could ask the nurses to do it q1 hour for the first couple of hours post post dpa and then eventually uh you know every you know 6 to 8 hours for the first 72 hours and it gives very objective information you know um, you know to track the patient's uh, condition so that is severity right so it's it, it it's a scale designed to uh uh, measure severity of score of, of stroke. I'm sorry, and then it can use to predict outcomes as well. The modified ranking on the other side um, is a, um, a a measurement of function, and it's extremely valuable, right? When the, when you're you, when you're dealing with uh, with stroke patients in general, It was also developed to deal with stroke patients. And for this particular one, then yes, ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic strokes can, uh, you know, apply. Um, And and it tells function. And when you communicate with, you know, with individuals, with family members, right, you can actually use this because um, they're not just based on experience, but based on clinical trials and statistics, you can actually guide expectations of outcomes, right? And then you can use this to sort of like explain uh, to individuals, you know, know, what the function is or is uh, supposed to be, you know. Uh, after the intervention. So, um, zero to six is very simple to remember, zero, no deficits, six is death. Uh, one is somebody that has had, you know, uh, a stroke and has um, no symptoms except when perhaps gets tired, you know, and anxious, right? You get symptoms from, from the prior stroke. So that's usually, you know, very mild uh, disability. Two, uh, it's mild uh, disability is usually a patient that you see, you know, sort of like walking Uh, you know, on the street, perhaps with a limp, but with really no devices, right? Or perhaps with a cane here and there. Uh, Three is moderate disability. Somebody has had an ischemic stroke and has a lot of issues with the activities of daily living, perhaps needs some assistance in some of those activities of daily living, walks with a cane or with a device, right? But is able to feed himself or herself uh, and and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Four is severe uh, disability. And it, it usually represents that patient that is actually handicapped from a stroke and requires a lot of assistance. Sometimes, you know, patients uh, end up with a trach and a peg but are not vegetative, all right, or minimally conscious. So that's sort of like a, a, an important definition of uh, MRSO4. And then finally, five, somebody with an ischemic stroke that unfortunately is minimally conscious, perhaps evolving into a vegetative state, usually a, a severe brain injury, a, a, a severe stroke. And then six, as I said, death. So the clinical trials have been in a stroke have been designed to capture these outcomes in the long term, three, six months, and 12 months down the road. And um, there are, you know, a variety of clinical trials you know, uh, for different interventions that have used this. And knowing those, you know, when you're having interactions about um, prognostication, right, uh, this uh, scale becomes very useful. And again, there's also centers and uh, websites that can train you and certify you. So that when you give an NIA stroke scale and a modified ranking scoring in the medical record, that is a certifiable scale, right? So um, uh, it's also important, right, because if you have somebody with a premorbid condition, right, of let's say five, somebody comes in vegetative and now you're suspecting the patient has a stroke, you know, yes, you could treat that patient, right? But the jump on, on improvement is not going to be meaningful, right, because there's nothing – for that patient right to improve the patient it's not going to go back to a three or a two right so having those discussions then with family is also important right at the point of care are you going to treat somebody that has with something that has a, a chance of uh, or some risks you know bleeding and uh, you know you name it so uh, that's when this scale becomes really uh important
1: and and would it be fair to say that three and below is considered a good outcome and four, five, and six obviously are non-desirable outcomes in general.
0: Correct. And that dichotomization, right, historically is what, you know, uh, trials and stroke have are of, like, use in the, in, 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 in the follow-up, right, of these patients, right? But I think ordinal scales are much better now than the dichotomized, uh, you know, outcome that you mentioned, right? I think, uh, you know, if you come in with a zero and having a jump to a two, well, perhaps, you know, and then you don't get back to zero, right? You know, even though it's within that sort of like, um, you know, good outcome sort of like thing, right? Um, you know, you have jumped, you know, excessively, right, within the uh, within the function. So the ordinal scales, in terms of measuring outcomes on the road, I think are more e- are efficient. But you're right. Historically, what you said is what's considered a good outcome.
1: Excellent. And I think that we're for today's discussion, Fred. I, I, we Before we start recording, we talked about some of the things that I wanted to focus on. We're probably not going to go, obviously, into every single little detail regarding acute ischemic stroke. Uh, There'll be references uh, attached to the show notes. But uh, what I do want to talk about as a starting point for the management is neuroimaging. And obviously, that's the cornerstone of uh, making therapeutic decisions uh, historically a CT non-contrast of the brain was what we got. And we got that quickly. Could we start there and then maybe expand on what's next? Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so gold standard, right. For uh, dealing with somebody with, uh, with a stroke, stroke syndrome, uh, is imaging, right. And you could get a CAT scan within five minutes in the emergency department or in any in other institution on the floor in the your unit. I know they have portable versions of this stuff, right. Uh, and, and, and the resolution is it's, it's it's pretty similar. So you have you know let's say you know a patient you know in the CT ICU that just had cardiac surgery and now is hemiparetic, right? And then you need a quick assessment. But let's say the patient has a couple of chest tubes and pacemaker wires, right? A portable scan makes a lot of sense. Now you cannot do perfusion or angiogram with those devices, but I think in the future, because now they are doing this uh, angiograms, right, on these portable scanners on ambulances in Texas. So I don't know if you know about that, right? But um, but, but this technology is going to continue to, uh, to, to evolve and perhaps in the ICU we might be able to give contrast with a CAT scan if you have a, a good protocol, but in general, right, the non-contrast is the one um, that is readily available and it helps you um, discern between um, or differentiate uh, between hemorrhagic strokes and ischemic strokes because that's a contraindication for uh, a thrombolytics, right, if you have somebody with an ICH or an aneurysm that ruptured. Uh, you know, clearly a contraindication to give uh, thrombolytics. And that's how we start practicing, you know. And then over the last 10 uh, to 15 years, right, the CT angiogram became an important component, right, uh, of the assessment um, because of the evaluation of the anatomy, right? So uh, specifically for this patient, has been moderate to, to large or severe strokes. You want to know, right, if you're dealing with a vessel occlusion that requires... Uh, a mechanical, uh, intervention. And the reason for that is very simple is that we learn from the clinical studies, right. In, uh, thrombolysis, right. That T occlusions or, or M1 occlusions, particularly T occlusions, right. Um, uh, I the distal, you know, internal carotid occlusion, they don't recanalize that well with, uh, with just intravenous thrombolytics, right. And, and, and that is what opened up, right. All these, like, new era of revascularization, right? Is the T-occlusion, proximal occlusal of the, M, uh, of the MCA, rarely recanalized just with uh, uh, TPA. And if you look at the literature, we're talking about rates around 20% of recanalization, which is the same as placebo in the original N-I-N-D-S-TPA uh, study. So we're, we're basically talking that if you are recognizing a large vessel occlusion, a carotid occlusion, or a T-occlusion, and a proximal MCA occlusion, perhaps the chances of recanalizing that with thrombolytics are as good as placebo on the original uh, 1996 NINDS TPA study. So, um, so, 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 so that's why CPA is so important. And it gives you a lot of information, right? You want data, you want information where you're dealing with these patients. Does the patient have an intracranial stenosis as well? Does the patient have a contralateral uh, uh, carotid stenosis or, or MCA stenosis that may require a little bit of more liberal blood pressure management down the road? Uh, or does the patient have a dissectional, does the patient have a free thrombus also? Uh, those sort of things, um, you know, you learn a lot from, from looking at, uh, at the CTA and, uh, on the basis of that, then you can sort of like predict, you know, uh, your recanalization, you know, with, with thrombolytics and then if the patient requires, um, uh, an intervention because of what I said, you know, recanalization is, is really low. Perfusion, right, is a more advanced technique and not every center has. this. some centers in having corporate perfusion, right, in terms of decision-making. Most of the clinical trials in uh, thrombectomy did not require a perfusion. It was basically an assessment of the um, degree of, of, of ischemia or infarct on a CAT scan, so on the non-contrast CAT scan. And you can interpret that um, just by looking at a CAT scan. And there is a specific scoring system. Uh, for what called call the aspect score, that was designed also to, um, uh, you know, to sort of like uh, you know predict you know um, the the degree of, of core right versus penumbra, and then the, the the rate of complications, right? So the lower the aspect score, a score of ten is usually normal. The lower the aspect score, then the higher chance of complications after recanalization by obvious reason, because you're basically recanalizing somebody with a lot a lot of infarct burden, right? So. Uh, so that is from, uh, from, from the non-contrast. The perfusion acts uh, a little bit more uh, on the basis of software interpretation of blood flow, right? So it, it tells you, uh, you know, on the basis of how much contrast is circulating in the arterial and venous um, you know, phases of, of, of the perfusion scan. And the software sort of like gives you a number, and there are more sophisticated, uh, you know, packages right now uh, out there, Um you know, that can interpret that for you and can give you values of, of, of perfusion. And then on the basis of that, people can actually intervene. Some centers use perfusion uh, to predict complications. So a, 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 a bad perfusion scan will make somebody with a large vessel occlusion not be a candidate for, uh, for intervention. Some other centers use more the clinical exam and the aspect score uh, without perfusion, right? I think perfusion becomes really valuable um, when your um, when your clock, it's sort of like unknown when you don't really know the last thing normal and somebody wakes up with a stroke, for example, uh, I think perfusion becomes, uh, really, uh, important to go back to that point that you mentioned at the beginning, the biological clock. And I think imaging is what is going to align you more to the biological clock, meaning the real time of the stroke rather than the, the clinical time. Because I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, and, and, and you've probably have seen this, right? Uh, family members don't know when the last normal is, and it's just really, uh, uh, you know, devastating not knowing that because you cannot do anything. Or providers in the hospital, you know, the patient goes to the room six hours, nobody checks the patient, and then nobody really knows when the last normal is. But imaging can actually help you with aligning you with that biological clock. Some of the people have used um, MRI technology, and that's actually probably a next generation, right? But getting a stat MRI, saying, I'm going to keep unique stroke. Is something that is not pragmatic yet, at least in, in most centers in the United States. Perhaps research centers are uh, more capable of using AMR technology with diffusion and flare, for example, to determine uh, that biological clock in the patient is amino for uh, thermolysis, for example. There was a study you know, in 2017 18 uh, that basically you know, showed that MRI can assist in even TPA in patients that are waking up with strokes.
1: Excellent. And I think, Fred, that it'd be fair to say, right, that uh, time is of the essence. So getting a plain CT as soon as possible is the first point. And we shouldn't really delay doing that uh, or the potential initiation of, as we'll see um, thrombolysis, if we're trying to get like an MRI or CTA, CTA, CTP, if we don't have that in place. But, But the initial plain CT will tell you if there's blood, which would be a contraindication for thrombolysis. But it also can give you information of the nature of the stroke as well, right? Like you could see a dense MCA, MCA or you could see, I mean, uh, significant um, um, uh, findings that might give you an indication of how severe this is. Now, the CTA and the CT, CT perfusion are obviously a step further that allow you to refine your best therapeutic approach in a much more calibrated way, is that the way you would think about this?
0: I do, I do. Um, the, the, the The perfusion can actually help you calibrating, as you're saying, and the CTA gives you enormous information about the anatomy. And if you look at the guidelines, right, I think CTA is becoming more like a standard of care right now. So, uh, you know, your, your stroke protocol, you should have at least, you know, a CT scan at CTA, and of course, there are contraindications for it, right? But um, you, you you just have to think about can the patient get contrast or not.
1: Excellent. So one of the, the, key, the key goals, obviously, in advanced stroke management uh, is revascularization and limiting secondary brain injury. Uh, historically, this really started with the initial studies that suggested that IVTPA uh, made a difference. Uh, those seem to take a long time to really catch on, and it feels from my perspective as a non-neurologist, that for many years we probably have underperformed as a medical um, community in providing TPA to patients who could benefit from it for many reasons. Maybe you can expand on those. But also now there's a new era with a whole set of endovascular therapies that are available, but also, like you said, with a much more biological biological approach at a time and to windows that seem to be uh, continue to expand. So why don't we start with IV thrombolysis? You want to take us through the history and kind of where it stands today, and then after that we can talk a little bit more about endovascular therapy.
0: Yeah. So the, the history of thrombolysis is actually a uh, a, a very uh, you know sort of a complicated uh, <laughs> um, history in uh, in neurology because uh, it started with negative studies, right? So it actually started with uh, you know, uh, you know, people extrapolating, you know, a doses for MI into ischemic strokes or so like learning very quickly. That uh, that that was not the the, the 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 right way. And then sort of like adjusting the dose right and um, getting to uh, a dose that was, that was more amenable with uh, uh, with ischemic stroke. But um, since '95, '96 with NINDS, uh, started, there's there's been a lot of criticisms to. Um, uh, to the way of, of how we incorporated TPA into our, our momentarium uh, to treat stroke patients. And when I was in medical school in 1990, right, there was nothing to do for these patients. I mean, you know, these patients would come in, and they would just, like, there's nothing to do, and they would just go to the floor. They, they, would, they wouldn't even go to the intensive care they go to the floor, and then they would just decompensate and die. I mean, you wouldn't even incubate these patients, right? They're just, like, massive stroke, nothing to be done. It was, like, a bad sentence. And then in 95 uh you know uh, the, the, the the results of the study came out right showing uh a uh, a benefit right and um you know a, a lot of people have criticized that that that, that study because it, the benefit was not really for uh the primary endpoint right it was for the second endpoint right but On the basis of that you know we started incorporating this stuff uh uh you know for managing our our ischemic stroke patients and then eventually more clinical trials are looking at this, you know, it start, starts start, start like adjusting, uh, you know, dosing and timing, right? And um, and when you looked at the pool, sort of like analysis of those studies over 15 years, right? You see a clear um, effect, right? And, and 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 the skeptics are always saying, well, why aren't we considering the negative trials? I mean, it could this be a, a harmful uh, intervention for, um for, for stroke reasons. And the answer to that is that I haven't seen a negative trial since we started using TPA, you know, in, uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, right? And on the other hand, right, we have become more sort of like uh, careful about selecting patients. And I think patient selection was an issue on the original studies, right? I think for dosing. But right now that we're selecting these patients so carefully, right, um, so like patient-based uh, selection process, I, I think the rate of complications is actually um, lower. And the other issue was, right, the bystander recognition of this stuff, right? So uh, now patients are coming quicker, you know, to the healthcare system, and and then you're seeing a um, a, a lower rate of complications, right, when these patients get uh, thrombolysis or thrombectomy, right, um, earlier, right? Of course, like, you're giving this stuff, you know, at the end of 4.5 hours, right, you're, you know, you're probably going to have more complications uh, that um, if you do it in the first 30 minutes of, of, of an ischemic stroke, so um, so so that is the the, the issue, right? Um, over the last 15 to 20 years, and so like the debate, you know, surrounding uh, intravenous thrombolysis. But when you look at the meta-analysis, there are a couple that I can quote, you know, in JAMA um, by Jeffrey Saver, for example, uh, the incidence of hemorrhagic complications, the incidence of, uh, of mortality in the hospital, right, uh, the incidence of uh, being discharged to home and having a better functional outcome, right? All time dependent, you know, with uh, intravenous thrombolytics. So when you add up all that information, you're like, well, I don't see any negative effect here, right? So I, I think it's time to sort of start thinking ser- seriously about, um, you know, uh, thrombolysis. The problem with thrombolysis, right, that you have a very narrow window, um, usually three hours with, uh, uh, you know, a lot of you know contraindications and and, and, and issues and then, uh, for a specific patient core, you can actually extend that to 4.5 hours with additional uh, uh, contraindications. So in reality, right, 3.5 hours, right, uh, is very sh- very short, very narrow. So that's why a lot of patients are not uh, uh, getting And if you look at the the, the 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 administration rate in the United States, I think we're still like around, you know, 2 to 5%, you know. Um, and when I started, it was like, like, like 2%. I, I guess it's, you know, coming up a little bit more because of, all the campaigns and American Heart Association, American Strike Association education for bystanders to recognize it. So that's another problem, right? Is that people don't recognize this with, with enough time to get the patient into the uh, um, uh, to the healthcare system. But, um, you know, remember what I said about the ambulances circulating, you know, in, in, in Texas, that approach, for example, has increased the delivery of TPA of, of, of in, in um in, in the in, in the field with really no uh you know major incidents of of, of complications right the, the question is can that be implemented everywhere and the answer is well that's difficult because it's very expensive right and um and i i don't think every every jurisdiction has the budget to uh, to deal with this stuff but if you live more than 30 minutes away from a stroke center right observational studies have shown that you are more likely to not get any intervention uh just because of that right so you know how are we going to cover that gap uh, it, it's a thing that we can need for the future in europe on the other hand right you know um you know y- you can get access to uh a stroke center very quickly right so um so these ambulances you know don't make a lot of sense right if you live in an urban area where you can get in, into a hospital within five, 15 minutes of being recognized uh but it would make more sense for rural areas or uh yeah, that don't have access to uh to stroke centers um,
1: and a couple questions here regarding um, thrombolysis, IV thrombolysis. So clearly, like like you stated, Fred, the the literature is solid and improving uh, outcomes, both in terms of neurological outcomes, but also overall mortality long term, right? And that in- includes uh, uh, accounting for potential complications like like intracerebral hemorrhages, which, as you mentioned, with the right um, patient population selection seems to be much lower than people believe it is. But it, the, the time frame you said is three hours from onset of symptoms. Uh, so that's onset of symptoms to, uh, to needle. And it's, it can be expanded to 4.5 hours in some patient populations. But would it be fair to say that the goal is still to, to try to uh, evaluate uh, or, or put as many patients as possible at the door of receiving it, right? And then obviously you can go through the contraindications and if they don't qualify, that's okay. But also even for patients who might benefit down to a, a little bit later from endovascular therapy, we should still strive to give IV tPA when possible. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So thinking that somebody's a candidate for, for a thrombectomy and endovascular intervention does not you know, um, preclude um, the patient from, uh, you know, receiving intravenous thrombolysis as long as the patient is within the, uh, you know, uh, zero to 4.5 hour window and meets all the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. They have tried to, you know, these clinical studies where, you know, um, you know, you use half of the dose or different weird doses, right? And the answer is just like, no, you know, you use the full dose of, of TPA and then you get the patient to, Thrombectomy and the combination, right? It's actually um, you know uh, uh, associated with uh, better re-canalization scores, right? So um, you know, and that, that's another thing that 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 we should talk about, right? So the difference between uh, tenecteplase and, and alteplase, right, is that you know when, when you compare both, they sort of like are the same in terms of uh, uh, recanalization, but when you use thrombectomy or, or mechanical intervention, right, with uh, tenecteplase, right, that combination seems to be better. Than uh, without the place, so that's why some centers right now, like my center, uh, converted to uh, administering connective place for eligible patients when the suspicion uh, for thrombectomy you know, was high. Uh, so, uh, so we're use, you're using your recent connective place now more than um, than before.
1: So, the so the use of tenet place is, is increasing because of its improved outcomes when you combined. IV thrombolysis with endovascular intervention. Is that correct?
0: Correct. Yes. So I so I don't know. I, I haven't looked at literature and see if there's more adoption in the U.S., right, uh, for connected place because, uh, I mean, we, we fought to give uh, TPA for 15, 20 years, right? So a lot of centers got very used to using uh, alteplase, right? And um, and as I said, you know, when you compare head to head, they are the same in terms of... Uh, um you know outcomes and regionalization um but the problem with out place right is that it requires preparation right so you know it requires a pharmacist to make the uh, the solution based on patient weight uh piece on the other hand is ready use you don't need a pharmacist right so um in my experience some institutions have had a lot of issues with delivering out the place on time in the emergency department and that added to that clock, right, that you start when a patient hits the emergency department or or when, when the stroke alert is activated, right, is that, you know, if, if you're preparing this for 5 to 10 minutes, well, those 5 to 10 minutes are costing the patient, you know, uh, 10 20 million neurons, you know, so it's like 2 million neurons per minute, right, so, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's why, but I, but I haven't, you know, looked in the literature and seen, right, if the United States is adopting more, uh what i can tell you right because of the price is that my colleagues in mexico for example or my colleagues in colombia or chile they are using more tenectoplase because it's easier to use so it makes total sense right i'm not i don't have any conflicts of interest right about these thrombolys right but what i'm saying is um that if something is easier to use and is associated with better outcomes so why not using it right
1: makes sense so let's talk a little bit fred of um, of endovascular and revascularization or endovascular therapy. And that is a a more recent history, but also similar, right? I mean, the first studies, perhaps because of how they were designed and the patient selection, were not so encouraging. And some people kind of felt very cold about these therapies. But then I think a series of of studies showed that they actually – have a great uh, impact on outcomes, but also have extended the window of things that are possible for the right selection of patients. So could you talk us a little bit about endovascular therapy?
0: Yes. So I, I, I train in, in, uh, in different phases of the development of endovascular therapy. So around when I was training at, in, at the end of 2000, uh, 2005, 2008, right. Um, th- this, uh, philosophy, you know, um, W- was getting implemented, and it made bi- biological sense because of what I said, you know, uh, a clot in the, the terminus of the carotid, right, is not going to dissolve very well with uh, uh, with, with thrombolytics. so why not going after the clot, right, but, you know, that learning curve translated into, you know, experiencing some negative trials and some actually harmful harmful trials, right, and then the other thing that, that, that was part of it besides the learning curve of all, of all of these providers, right, was the technology, right, so we were using um, you know, uh a device, well, I wasn't, right, but this intervention is where you were using these devices, right? Uh, that were for cardiac purposes or were for some other purposes, right? So there wasn't really like, like a device that was sort of like uh, adapted and that technology evolved, right? Since 2005, okay. 2015, right? So the first clinical studies, right? On thrombectomy were not promising in my opinion because of that learning curve, right? It, you, you know, you provided you to do a lot of these interventions to get really proficient with it. And then the technology was actually, you know, crappy, you know, in, in my opinion. But then when these catheters started to evolve and the companies started to manufacture catheters that were actually uh, designed to treat uh, uh, brain vascular injuries, right? Um, we have the uh, the stent retrievers right now. so are the ones that actually, you know, made everything, uh, you know, possible, Uh you know, so that technology and, and the combination of people getting more proficient with that stuff is what led to the second um, iteration of clinical studies that actually transform uh, uh, the way that we think about uh, So, like very robust um, uh, signal, right? That, and, and you see it at the bedside, uh, sorry, here. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is incredible seeing, you know, this 80-year-old that comes in, right? with a NIH scale of 25, totally devastated, right? And then the next morning, as an NIHR scale of one or two, it's just like, it's like mind-blowing, you know? Um, And no complications, right? It's good patient selection, good, um, you know, hands, provider hands, and very good uh, technology, right? And I would just throw there, very good critical care, right? Because those are the things that you need to sort of like have. When, when, when I talk about stroke care, I talk about a multidisciplinary approach. So it's just not the TPA or the provider with the thrombectomy or the ICU. Illinois. It's everything that happens, you know, from the paramedics that recognize the patient, right, to the rehabilitation centers. All of that sort of like combination, right, of things that happen that makes um, the outcome uh, e- even better. So I think those were uh, the issues with thrombectomies that we were learning, and biotechnology technology wasn't good. And then the second iteration of, of clinical studies actually showed a more robust signal, right? And uh, because of the technology, people actually got more experience with it.
1: And I think it's important to emphasize that for um, these uh, endovascular therapies, we're, we're looking at large vessel occlusions, right? So it's not for every stroke. It's also not for mild strokes. Like I, you said, I mean, NIH uh, stroke scale usually is going to be 14, 15, 16 or above. But could you t- tell us like, a, what would be the, the right patient selection and how we get to that? And give us a little bit of idea of uh, of the windows, right? Because this can be done, obviously, beyond uh, the 3 or 4.5 hours. And uh, give us a little more uh, of an idea of that, Fred, please.
0: Yes. So, uh, so, so for, for, for the first question, um, what is sort of like uh, a good um, rule of thumb of which patients qualify for um for endovascular intervention, right? So obviously, right, if you're doing CTA, you know immediately, right, if they have um, uh, large vessel occlusion that we, you know, um, define large vessel occlusion, uh, carotid, double the carotid, MCA, M1 segment, M2 segment. And those are the ones that were included in the uh, second iteration of clinical studies, right? But can M3 occlusions, uh, right? And, and when I'm talking about M3, M2, and M1, is the MCA, right? But can M3 occlusions or ACA occlusions or PCA occlusions or basilar occlusions um, derive a benefit from it? And the answer is possibly, right? But it hasn't been tested, right? There is a study right now trying to look at, you know, do M3 occlusions get better? with And M3 occlusions recently had distal occlusion, right? So you would get a smaller stroke than if you're knocking out the uh, uh, the whole MCA, right? So... Um, so a, a good rule of thumb is that if you're using a CTA, right, anyone with a uh, carotid occlusion up to the M3 would be an eligible candidate, right? Most of, of the data, the most robust data for carotid occlusions, um, these occlusions and then the MCA's and the M2s, right? Um, but I, I, I would not uh, not discuss, right, somebody with a PCA occlusion, right, with a uh, interventionist Why? Because like PCA occlusion could be devastating for somebody, you know, uh, that uses his eyes all the time. So you and I, for example, right? So, you know, are there risks and benefits, um, you know, in favor of, of, of proceeding with this? And the answer is, is, is possibly yes, right? Even though there is not a lot of uh, uh, clinical trial data on those uh, particular territories. So, um, uh, so that in terms of the anatomy, in terms of the CTA, clinically, right? If, if you are seeing a patient and you don't have yet information about um, uh, uh, the CTA, but you're looking at a CT scan and it looks pristine, normal, but the patient has a dense deficit, usually NIH score of more than five would align with the patient probably having a large vessel occlusion. But that's not, that's not a rule in general, right? Because I've seen patients with mild strokes, NIH scale less than five that have a large vessel occlusion. You could miss those, right, for intervention, and you're relying only on clinical exam. And there's a clinical study going on called Low NIH Stroke Scale Large Vessel Occlusion, trying to determine right what is the best approach to, uh, you know, uh, treat those patients, right? So in in, in my in, in my book, in my in my in my cookbook, right, when I'm dealing with somebody with stroke, CT CTA, regardless of the NIH NIH drug Scale, even TIAs, right, I I tell the emergency department or whoever I'm working with, right, this patient is a CT and a CTA right now, unless there's a clear contraindication for it. So um, all right, so I hope that answers uh, uh, the first question. For, um, for the vascular artery, right, I think that, you know, when you are dealing with a, uh, a, a DC state that could be potentially devastating, right, I think that a thrombectomy makes perfect sense, right? Uh, if you are uh, locked in and you are within a reasonable window, uh, you know, you should think about recanalization of the posterior circulation. I'm talking about uh, the vascular artery. Pertebral arteries, uh, you know, because of where they are, you know, the uh, collateralization that posterior circulation has from anterior circulation and from the contralateral artery, perhaps not amenable for interventions unless you're seeing a dissection and a patient has a lot of symptoms, meaning flow f- failure, you can consider stenting, but those carry a lot of morbidity and mortality, right? So you have to have a discussion uh, with the patient about that stuff, right? So, um, so that is in terms of the territory and the anatomy, right? In terms of timing, right? Timing is another variable that you can consider. Uh, so, the original, uh, you, know, uh, the se- another, you know, the second iteration that is looked at patients between 16 and 24 hours. So, um, so right now, we are favoring, uh, you know, in terms of timing for the uh, vascular thrombectomy, uh, after 24 hours in both the anterior and the posterior circulation, right, specifically, right, you can align that biological clock to imaging, right? So, if you have a CT, aspects is good. You know, the patient has been down uh, 16 hours. Obviously, that's not qualified for TPA, but you don't see anything in the CAT scan that worries you about a, a big core, right, of stroke, so many originals are actually going after that if they document uh, a large vessel completion, occlusion, right? And the, for the posterior circulation, uh, the rule of thumb was up to 24 hours, but, you know, I've seen cases where people have actually tried, you know, up to 36, you know, uh, but those are exceptional.
1: And in terms of the of the time frame, uh, Fred, uh, I know that some people talk about 6 to 24 hours as windows, depending on the findings on, clinical exam, but also on the CTA and the CTP. Could you talk a little bit about the time frame?
0: Yes. So, uh, I mean, for endovascular uh, intervention or for thrombolysis? Endovascular. Yeah, so for endovascular, right, uh, you know, 0-24. to I mean, if you have somebody, uh, as I said, you know, within a TPA window, right, and uh, qualifies for, for um, thrombolytics, right, um, and you see a large vessel occlusion, you, you know, you should go, you know, uh, after the occlusion, you know, you are within that, that, that window. So I would say 0 to 24 is sort of like what I would be thinking about, right? But again, if you don't have concise information about the timing, right, and the patient's at 36 hours, right, but you don't see anything in the CAT scan and and, and you see a large vessel occlusion, perhaps that occlusion happened not really 36 hours ago. It happened probably like 10 or 12 hours before, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, 0 to 6 hours before, and then you might be able to, you uh, to go after to that. So in general, right, zero to 24 hours is what I would consider, so like some eligibility uh, for TPA. And what I'm saying, I'm sorry, for endovascular intervention. And um, what I'm saying about the perfusion, right, is that some centers actually use it to predict complications, right? So um, some interventions don't use perfusion at all. Some interventions just go after uh, the large vessel of perfusion on the basis of clinical examination aspects. Some other centers use perfusion um, because right, it gives um, there. The, there are some, you know, cohort studies. that think like said, they have shown that um, a a mismatch, right, is associated with less um, uh, complications. That if you have a total match in terms of a number, I mean, in terms of a total match in terms of, uh, of 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 core or or ischemic uh, infarct, right, uh, in the patient. So somebody that has a completed stroke has more chances of complications so some centers are using it just to predict complications and not going after the, uh, the thrombectomy and there, there are centers like uh like like for example jefferson have published a lot of this stuff and um and, and and i think you know from their perspective it makes a lot of sense to uh to use perfusion uh you know to treat patients but as i said some other centers right um uh, like we are not using that much of perfusion unless you know there are a couple of uh um, uh, you know indications right patient wakes up with a stroke nobody really knows when that happened right the proficient can add a little bit more information for therapeutic interventions
1: and what you're looking for is a big mismatch like you said between the, the core of the infarct and the penumbra right so the, yes. the, the larger the mismatch the more likely that they would have lower complications but also that you could help them with an endovascular intervention exactly exactly perfect and in terms of follow-up Immediate follow-up, obviously, we have like, I mean, um, thrombolysis, um, perfusion scores that, that they use in the in the lab. But ultimately, like you mentioned earlier, once they come back to the ICU and we're following them, it's following the, the NIH stroke scale that, that is going to give us, I mean, kind of the best tool to see how they're evolving, correct? Yep. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit of management now. Uh, I want to start with some specific complications related to stroke. And uh, the first one, obviously, is cerebral edema and uh, malignant uh, uh, MCA infarctions. But uh, could you talk a little bit about that in terms of how we recognize it, who's at risk, and then what what really should be the approach of treatment?
0: Yes, so, yes. So that's a, that's a great question, right? So uh, cerebral edema, um, uh, hemorrhagic complications, um, and I'll talk a little bit about seizures. Um, you know, are sort of like the main ones uh, that you are concerned about uh, once a patient, uh, you know, ends up in the intensive care unit. So, if if somebody has had good recanalization, right, with thrombolytics and TPA, right, uh, there is a lower chance of the patient developing cerebral uh, edema because if you recanalize and you recanalize normal tissue, right, or penumbra tissue, then you know, very unlikely the patient is going to have an infarction and it's going to swell, right. Um, so, you know, recanalization scores, you know, I'm talking about TK2B23 are usually associated with um, lower incidence of hemicroniectomy, right? From cerebral edema, right? That sort of thing. There's some expectation of some cerebral edema, right? The patient has already some core some uh, infarct, right? And um, but but the burden, right, it's it's what predicts best the uh uh, the explosion of cerebral edema, and there are a couple of things, you know, um, you know that you could use, you know, from imaging. For example, if you have a two thirds of a vascular territory affected, you should expect some cerebral edema with, with brain compression, right? Um, because most of, 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 of the real state in the brain is from the, you know, for the MCA, right? So two thirds of the MCA is can associated with, uh, you know, worse outcome, more cerebral edema, more chance of complication involving the basal ganglia, also, you know, because actually is the stem of the MCA, so that's usually a proximal occlusion that also predicts, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, complications with cerebral edema. Uh, hypertension uh, and hypotension also, right? It's a U-wave or a U curve response, right, to this stuff. Uh, so if you don't control the blood pressure adequately, right, post-regionalization, um, or if you let the patient drive too low because of the autoregulation, then you're going to cause more edema because of visceral dilatation, right? So you have to be careful also with the two extremes of low pressure management. And in terms of management, right, medically, right, what we could do, right, I mean, the thrombectomy, as I said, you know, it's a game changer in terms of relieving edema. You get good scores and the patient drops from 24 in the initial scale to 3 or 2, right, then you know, right, that patient is not going to have uh, a large hemispheric infarction where you're going to deal with a lot of edema and midline shift. But let's say that's not the case then medically what can you do so the recommendations are right uh blood pressure control as i mentioned hyperglycemia is the other thing that you need to be so like on top of right Uh, we usually recommend you know as in medical patients the night sugar levels 150 to 180 uh, what we call normal glycemia we don't recommend um more intense uh regimens of of glucose management you know uh down to 100 120 you know there's a uh, a study already done in this literature showed that it didn't help and actually was associated with more hypoglycemia. So, sort of like similar to the Vanderburg, uh, you know, uh, uh, data, you know, in sepsis and in, in, in the medical ICU population. So, nice sugar seems to be okay. Um, the other thing is, I, I usually preach about this, you know, when, when people ask me you know, what to do in the ICU for these patients, right? So, if the patient didn't get good canalization, by the way, sometimes patients get uh, thrombosis again, right? So, you, you end up with those patients, that do two, three passes, and then, you know, it, it doesn't help, right? So, there's nothing you could do about it, right? So, before we consider surgery, right, can we do something medical? And the answer is yes. You know, there's stuff that you could do. Uh, I talk about um, hyperglycemia management already. Uh, there was a study called GAMES-RP, uh, you know, that used uh, sulfonylureas, right, for the management of cerebral edema because these medications inhibit a special aquaporin, you know, channel that decreases the chances of, of, of swelling uh, because of inhibition of free water going into the neurons, right? Um, so that was associated with less cerebral edema and less midline shift, right? It didn't really prevent the, the incidence of hemicronectomy, and that's why there's a second study going on with intravenous glibanklysmide trying to look at the same sort of question, but at, at, at my institution, we have incorporated um, uh, Glyburide as part of the anti-edema, anti-serial edema protocol uh, for these patients uh, with really aggressive um, oversight of, 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 of glucose at bedside, right? Because I mean, this thing can cause hypoglycemia as well, right? So uh, so we do that. And then hypertonic saline solutions, right? And hypersonal therapy, they, they, they can help. And I usually refer to, um, to, to studies, you know, of ischemic stroke in, in, in the United States that have used hypersmolar therapy to keep sodiums around 150 to 155, I'm talking about health first, for example, um, that showed that the incidence of hemicronectomy was the same in the medical uh, arm and in the surgical arm in those patients um, that were treated with, uh, with hypertonic signs. So that's another thing that you could consider, right? So uh, as, as part of uh, sort of like expert opinion in my institution, right, we have uh, determined, right, that somebody with a T-occlusion or an M1 occlusion that doesn't open up uh, with recanalization is going to adapt with this sort of like prophylactic uh, you know, therapies, liborite, hypertonic saline, or sodium cell so 150 to 155. And then you could add, even though there's not a lot of data right now, um, even though there's epidemiological data suggesting that uh, you know, fever was, was, was bad and associated with exacerbation of cerebral edema, right? but uh, you know, it's going to be very hard to talk about fever and prevention of, 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 of fever or treatment of fever, in, in this era of temperature modulation, I, I just know what to tell you, right? But the study that was looking at that called Intrepid recently closed because of um, uh, futility. So that means that they didn't achieve the primary endpoint or any significant difference in the outcomes of people that were treated with fee- uh, for fever um, aggressively versus the medical uh, treatment alone. So, um, but I mean, if you still believe in temperature modulation, you could say, well, perhaps I'm gonna treat the patient that gets neurologically worse meaning it gets worse perhaps i want to do a little bit more normothermia more aggressive intervention trying to prevent it so those are the things that you could think about seriously and then finally right if, if if you cannot deal with it right the patient is getting worse patient is going to end up with a if it's a large hemispheric infarction usually an mca uh infarct of more than two-thirds right and then you know depending on the age you know sometimes it helps uh with, with functional uh, outcomes in the long term usually older people you're only saving lives, right? So uh, they're going to look the same way uh, six months down the road, right? So they're only saving lives for people that are older than 60, 65 years of age.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important with the as You mentioned that as a, as a, a, as a last, a uh, very invasive um, resort, but usually in your practice and what most people would recommend is to take a medical approach, try to control it, but if you're not uh, successful, then uh, in the right patient, discuss with the family the potential for hemocrinectomy. But my understanding of the literature, Fred, and please uh, elaborate on this, is that actually in patients who are 60 or younger, a hemocrinectomy done in a timely fashion will improve mortality and also will probably improve their modified ranking score. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is correct. It's actually neuroprotective when you look at the shift in the MRS uh, from the historic clinical studies. And what you're saying is, you know, right on the spot, you know, Younger patients at that 60, you should experience that effect. More than 60, uh, perhaps not on the basis of, uh, you know, studies in Europe. Um, but, you know, what, what I have to say about hemicronectomy, and, 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 I, and again, I haven't looked at this systematically or scientifically, um, we looked at this in our own experience at, at uh, Jefferson, where I used to work before. Um, you know, the incidence of hemicronectomy decreased with a recanalization canalization score. So, you know, we, we saw less hemicronectomies with patients getting actually recanalize you know uh you know to to very good levels right so i i I think that if you looked at this in some database right you will see that recanalization will be associated with decreasing the on the on the use of hemicorinectomy and i hope that that is the trend because i mean you are saving them from this very morbid surgical intervention it has a lot of complications right so as you mentioned
1: well and absolutely if you think about cerebral edema is a is a result of secondary or extensive neurologic injury. And the whole point of revascularizing a patient is to prevent that. So it would, it would make sense, right, that if we're successful, that we should see lower rates of malignant cerebral edema or malignant exactly. uh, MCA infarctions, uh, and hence less patients who would need a hemichrome which is obviously, like you said, a good thing. The other yeah. complication that I wanted to ask you about, uh, and you mentioned that it was hemorrhagic transformation, obviously especially in patients who received it, uh, IV tPA, but this can also happen without IV tPA, and uh, just in terms yep. of how to recognize it, how to approach it, uh, in terms of, of therapy.
0: Yes. So hemorrhagic transformation. Uh, if you look at the original, uh, you know, rates, you know, sixty, I'm uh, sorry, six to seven percent, you know, post tPA, and um, depending on um, on the burden of infarct, right, the, the 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 higher the core. Right, and the lower the mismatch, meaning more infarct, and that's what CT perfusion is. It would be very good at, you like, uh, you know, telling you. Right, um, those are the things that are associated with more hemorrhagic transformation. Hemorrhagic transformation is also associated with um, hypertension, right? Especially after recanalization. That's why the uh, blood pressure guidelines for a, t- uh, a post thrombole- thrombolytic patient is systolic blood pressure less than one eighty. And depending on the recanalization score, if the patient has gotten uh, thrombectomy, you can also guide uh, blood pressure parameters, right? So if the patient gets a good recanalization, take it to B to three, um Then, you know, uh, the, the, the post hoc analysis or the, the, the uh, retrospective analysis, right, of, of, of the studies that looked at this uh, uh, revascularization business, have shown that systolic blood pressure is perhaps one twenty to one forty are associated with better outcomes, right? And, and 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 the answer is, you know, is that after re canalization, right? You have to be very uh, anal or very um, uh, strict about the the top and then the low uh, blood pressure parameter, right? So that's a second thing. So uh, Tiki two uh, B or less, I'm sorry, not Tiki two B, Tiki two A or less, uh, perhaps um, more liberal blood pressure, perhaps. Less than 160 right um would be good and then if you don't get any recanalization you know tiki um, one perhaps you should go back to less than 180 if the patient got tpa or perhaps even consider uh, a higher blood pressure level uh to allow collaterals to uh to circulate but you know that's a decision that you can make um you know after knowing the anatomy of the patient knowing uh the interventions that were provided and the complications that happened or didn't happen uh during the procedure so uh hyperglycemia also associated with um, uh, hemorrhoid transformation. So uh, as I said, you know, normal glycemia are so like the goal in the ICU. Um, you know, diabetic patients are higher risk uh, of developing uh, complications. Of course, if you have uh, somebody that was taking an anticoagulant, right, um, direct oral anticoagulant, right, and more like used right now for prevention stroke in AFE patients. So, um you don't usually reverse those for schemes, for right. So many right, people are going after those clots in the setting of, of 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 DOAC right? Even though I haven't seen that much of major, you know, greater complications and interventionists are, are okay with that. Uh that's not another consideration. Any coagulopathy in general, right? Um The use of aspirin and antiplatelets are not associated with uh, hemorrhagic complications, except the combination of dual antiplatelets, right? So when when you combine aspirin with something else, uh, you're more likely uh, to have more hemorrhagic complications. And there there is uh, an antiplatelet that, um, you know, we try to use in ischemic stroke, and we stop using it because of the incidence of hemorrhagic transformation. It's called Prasugrel, we don't use it that much. That's probably the only one that I would say may be associated with hemorrhagic transformations. talk a, a little bit about seizures too uh, you know the, the 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 thought process for seizures after ischemic stroke is that you don't see that much of seizures you know in the uh in the uh aftermath of ischemic stroke with thrombolysis or thrombectomy unless the patient gets a lot of like you know complications gets a subdural or gets a hemorrhagic uh so, so we're in a hemorrhage from a dissection right and perhaps right uh but prophylactically we don't use um uh, anti-epileptics uh post ischemic stroke right only when when we suspect that the chances of having a seizure are high. You know, as I said, hemorrhagic complications, may be one of them, right? Hemachronectomy or craniotomies, right? Maybe a, a second a second one. But prophylactically, we don't use antiepileptics.
1: Excellent. And, and the, other, the other thing I wanted to ask you um, in this portion, which uh, is not something that I have seen commonly uh, or I've not seen at all, actually, but is well described in the literature, is uh, in patients who get out um, the pace, they can have a, they can have an uh, anaphylactic reaction. Uh, any comments on recognizing and managing this?
0: Yes, uh, it's you uh, uh, in reported the literature. I think the, uh, the 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 incidence is about uh, less than two percent. If I'm around point six two percent, if I'm not wrong. But yeah, you know, I, I I've seen probably two or three patients post TPA uh, that develop um, this allergic reaction that is. Uh, Uh, similar to angioedema, right, and actually end up being intubated, right, Um, it's rare, it's usually in the same side of the stroke, I don't ask me why, I've asked, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, several colleagues about this, and I don't know if these, you know, it's related to a deafferentation somehow, ipsilateral to the stroke from um, uh, adrenergics, you know, some from the nervous system right and somehow these these vessels you know in the mouth or in the throat are so sort of like basically dilated, right and then you give uh TPA and then there may be also an effect of uh you know endothelial stuff i i, I, I have no, i have not been able to explain it very well but I've seen two or three cases with that stuff and and then the, the the normal reaction right is that you need to deal with that airway right um protect the airway at least for 24 hours and then try to get the patient better to treat them as angioidema. Perhaps some H2 blockers You know may help. Um, I don't think steroids help that much. but
1: So the treatment would be kind of, if you're infusing the place, you would stop it. I mean, steroids, obviously, like you said, who knows if they help, but people usually get them and then yeah. treat them similar with H1 and H2 blockers and if needed, maybe some epinephrine. So no different than yeah. you would treat any other angioidema. This is just recognizing it in the setting, right? Yes, and it's transient. It's usually transient. Maybe a genetic
0: predisposition to some Bradykinin pathway. I, I I don't know how to explain it.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So we, we talked about some very important aspects of general ICU management in the context of managing cerebral edema, preventing it, which and just providing I think good care, especially post uh, hopefully revascularization. But uh, I I wanted to to touch on two more uh, or expand a little bit on one thing and talk a little bit about airway management, any general uh, considerations, uh, Fred, that you could give us first on airway management in terms of oxygenation and ventilation for these patients?
0: I, I think the same principles for any uh, you know critically ill patient, you know, you have a patient that uh, requires airway protection um, in, in the setting of altermental mental status or a neurological injury, um, you know, you should get the airway protected, right, in terms of oxygenation avoiding both hypoxia and, and hyperoxia i would say are uh important in terms of hyperoxia you know there's been a lot of like observational studies on this stuff right but uh you know i think you, you know uh, over the last uh, 10 20 years you know in the field of, of critical care medicine uh we have to sort of like regress to the mean right so we used to like 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 do uh, uh super medicine for certain uh disease state. So in, in super hemorrhage we used to hypertense them and hyper, you know, give them give them hyperbulimia and give them a lot of uh, uh, blood transfusion, and right. we, we we learned that that doesn't work, right? For sepsis, it's the same thing, right? We used to give them a lot of fluids, right? And then now, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, perhaps we shouldn't, right? So uh, and 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 it's still like the same thing for um, for oxygenation in, in the actually just keep a, a PAO2 of you know 70 to 100. that's totally fine, right? um and then a saturation of more than 92 percent that's totally fine if you're following that in terms of co2 ventilation right normal carbia, right you know 35 to 45 it's sort of like okay unless you're dealing with a patient with uh, you know pulmonary comorbidities that you know requires a higher co2 you know to maintain a normal uh phs because the patient has uh pulmonary disease right um during the uh four three or four attacks of COVID, i don't remember if it's three or four i just lost count but uh we saw a lot of COVID patients with, uh, uh, you know, lung, you know, acute lung injury, right, from COVID. With ischemic strokes, right, and then we ended up, uh, you know, managing both in the, in the medical ICU. So, um, but the guidelines were the same, you know, try to keep a, a PaO2 of, of of seventy or, of, or 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 above, right? Um, you know, people have suggested to do neuromonitoring in those patients that are comatose, right? Um, you know, perhaps yes. Uh, you know, um, I, I I cannot tell you. You have an ischemic stroke. You know, uh, if if you should go down that path, here unless you have uh, uh, established protocol, right, and, and and know what to do with the uh, uh, with the information, right. But um, uh, but that's in terms of oxygenation and ventilation. You know, um, for the weaning, right, and, and and this is an important thing, right? Is that um, I mean, sometimes patients, you know, get better and then they they get wean and then they get liberalized from from the ventilator and, and and that is great sometimes patients with ischemic stroke especially the ones that don't respond to therapies end up with a hemicroniectomy right uh may need a tracheostomy right so when to do timing of, tri- of tracheostomy is another consideration when managing the airway and um there was a study you know and uh, we were so like um, enthusiastic about uh the set point study you know trying to see if early tracheostomy was associated with Better outcomes in in, in in neurological patients. It just didn't include ischemic stroke, right? And I heard that um, uh, I heard not actually. I read, you know, I think it was published in JAMA uh, a couple of months ago uh, that there wasn't any major um, uh, difference in 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 long term outcomes. But I, I just want to emphasize a couple of things about early Yes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of early traits in patients with severe neurological injury that are um, not so hot in the intensive care unit, right? And 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 I think that if you trade early, right, you're preventing a lot of things down the road, right? And, and sometimes families get stuck on the issue of, oh, is this going to be permanent or not? And you have to elaborate a little bit on, on that, right? But I think early tracheostomy is associated with uh, you know, better chances of weaning from the ventilator in these neurological patients. Uh, I think ventilator free days are higher in patients that get early trach, they can mobilize faster, they can go to rehab faster, they get less exposure to anesthetics and, and, and sedatives, right? They can, but you need to use when you're ventilating them in terms of infections like ventilator events and ventilator associated pneumonias, right? In my experience, right? I think that uh, I think it, it, it helps you with decreasing the incidence of those uh, complications in your in, in your unit. So I, I'm a fan of early tracheostomy and, and the set point study used a scoring system to ter- sort of like predict, right? And I think the scoring system works well at, at predicting right who may need a tracheostomy in the long term and you use not just neurological variables you also use medical variables right that uh sometimes uh, you don't think about you know when you have a patient with a stroke right you know you know there's a history of pulmonary disease or the history of pulmonary or lung injury you know and they keep saying predict uh, a need for tracheostomy and the answer is yes you know so you know those sort of things you know th- th- that's a the, the incidence of hemicraniectomy, right, uh, predict, uh, yes, it does, right, because it's a, it's a, it's a comorbid stuff, right, so unrestricted intervention, right. So when you have all these points run right, and then you end up with a high uh, set point score, right, you can't argue that perhaps, you know, early trade, but as I said, it's not associated with good func- uh, with better uh, functional outcomes that if you do it late. Um, but in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, sir, here, I think it helps you mobilizing patients faster, you know, trying to do stuff faster for, uh, for these patients.
1: And I think that obviously it's something hard to study, Fred, but also, um, and this is based on a very small end, but speaking with patients who have survived or recovered prolonged um, illness, um, more than one has uh, had tracheostomies and I've talked with them and they kind of said that, why didn't you do it earlier, right? I mean, it kind of is much more comfortable, it's safer, the patients, I mean, can yeah. interact better, require less uh, uh, medications. So there's other advantages that maybe are hard to capture just in a, in a mortality analysis, but that's definitely something to consider. The, the last thing I wanted to, to talk uh, about, uh, Fred, which you already did touch about, but I do think is an important aspect of what we do as intensivists in these patients, is blood pressure management. And as you alluded to earlier, um, the relationship between blood pressure and outcomes is a is a J or a U curve, right? So very high blood pressures or very low blood pressures are going to be associated with problems. But I, what I do think is worth mentioning is the approach we should have based on uh, where our patient falls in therapeutic interventions, right? So, uh, and I'll give you three categories, and I just want you to, to tell me how you would manage the blood pressure. So the first, mm-hmm. the first category is a patient who's not a candidate for TPA and is not a candidate for endovascular therapy.
0: Yeah, so if you look at the guideline, they tell you that the SDP should be less than 220, and I sort of, like, agree with that, right? But you have to look at the patient as a whole, right? So, you know, would 220 be okay for his heart or for his lungs or for his skin, you know, that sort of thing? That's a decision you need to make, right? So uh, let's say the patient has heart failure, has an EF of 20%, right, Just had ischemic stroke and then uh, has history of coronary artery disease. So the question is, would you allow that patient to have a blood pressure of 220? And the answer is probably, I would probably be a little bit more conservative, perhaps I would say, perhaps 180, and then I will see the patient at, at the bedside, right? But again, it's, it's, it's on the basis of, of, of patient's variables, right? Um, because you have somebody with CAD or just had a stand, you know, it has an EF of 20%, has SVP of 220, may not his heart may not or her heart may not like that that amount of blood
1: pressure second group of patients is a patient who comes in with very high blood pressure but is within the time frame for iv thrombolytics
0: yes so um you know high is usually more than 220 right so uh by uh consensus right uh, before we give TPA, we have to lower the blood pressure, uh, you know, uh, lower than 222 make the patient uh, animal, amenable for uh, for TPA. And then after he gets the TPA, the blood pressure has to be lower than 180, right? So when you think about the regulation, right, that patient is actually on the right side of the regulation. So, yes, when, when, when you're lowering the pressure, you're just basically trying to prevent the capillaries to leak and then sort of like explode um, and then um, prevent hemorrhagic complications. So I would say... For this particular patient perhaps 180 and when you look at the step down from 220 to 180 it's usually not more than 20 percent so you are still within that sort of like rule of thumb that in hypertensive urgency or emergencies right perhaps you should lower the MAP or the SPP uh, by no more than 20-25 percent of the baseline.
1: Excellent and the last category of patients are patients who are being wheeled off to the endovascular lab for endovascular revascularization.
0: Yeah, so same thing as as the ones above, right? If the patient didn't get TPA, then 220. If the patient got uh, uh, thrombolytics, perhaps uh, less than 180. And then um, after re-canalization, uh, we can decide about where to clamp it, right? If we, if we get successful re canalization TK2B23, perhaps a blood pressure less than 140 and more than 120 for the first 24 hours would be ideal. And if the patient didn't get very good re-canalization, perhaps, um, you know, 160 or less would be also ideal.
1: And in terms of drugs, uh, Fred, uh, what drugs do you like to use for these patients? I'm just curious. For blood pressure? Yep.
0: Yeah, so I like the calcium channel blockers, and I also like the uh, beta blockers, right? So uh, uh, we're using the uh, neuroICU combination of either nicardipine or clavidipine uh, or um, intravenous labetalol, right? I think there's a shortage for labetalol, so we've been using more, micardipine
1: and clavidine. Excellent. Well, I think that uh, obviously we've touched a, a lot during our discussion, I think a lot of very important topics. The last thing I wanted to touch as we close the, the topic on, on acute ischemic stroke is just the, the road to recovery. And uh, there's been a big push in the ICU in general for um, liberating patients from critical illness, for early mobilization, even in patients on the, on the ventilator. Uh, Early mobility is a big part of what we do in the A to F bundles. Could you just talk a little bit about early mobilization and rehab? Um, There seems to be kind of like a a perfect dose, not too much, not too early, and and not waiting too long. But if you could just comment where the literature stands on that right now, Fred.
0: Yes. So um, there's been a couple of clinical trials looking at early rehabilitation in patients uh, uh, with ischemic uh, ischemic stroke, um, specifically post Thrombolysis, right? And then they found that uh, that if, if you mobilize patients within 24 hours post tPA or or thrombolytic, uh, thrombolytics, they, they 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 had worse outcomes, right? Um, but when you look at the details of those clinical studies, right, is that the amount of energy or MetS metabolic uh, expenditure uh, that they were exposing the patients to were too high, in my opinion, right? So you know these were people that had just had a stroke, and then they were asking them to you know you know uh, you know, walk the room and then play. You know, in a soccer field. And I'm like, no. I mean, I, I, I think that early mobilization with sort of like a, um, you know individualized approach to the patient, right, with um, minimal um, you know metabolic exposure, right, um, may be ideal. So that's the criticism that I have to those studies. So some institutions actually adopted a no re, I'm sorry, no mobilization post TPA. Um, on the basis of that, uh, of that particular study. Uh, my experience is that, right, if uh, you're using isometrics, and you're using um, early mobilization to the bed and assistance, right, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the effect is not there. So it really depends on what type of exercises they're using, right? But I am a fan of early mobilization, liberation from mechanical ventilation early, right, and early rehabilitation. I mean, that's, that, that should be sort of like the goal, right? And, 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 and the issue that we have, um, both in the ICU and in the hospital setting, you know, it's, it's your inability to discharge these patients, you know, to, to rehab. The rehab that they get in the hospital is not as, as, uh, as good as the rehab that they're getting in the rehab center. So, you know, so, so sometimes families, they, 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 they are adamant about not being discharged, right? But in reality, you know, uh, a physical therapist can only do, you know, one or two hours of rehab uh, two or three times per week in some patients. In 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 in, in stroke center, right? So, uh, so so that is a, that is a challenge to getting people to uh, to rehabilitation, right? Um, so you know we usually start within within 24 hours. Um, as I said, you know because of my criticism, I don't believe that early rehab is associated with uh, abnormal outcomes in, in post TPA patients. Um, and uh, you know we're just trying to win fast, you know, and liberate mechanical ventilation
1: fast. Excellent. So, Fred, thanks again for, for, for giving us, I mean, this comprehensive overview and update, obviously, on acute margin of acute ischemic stroke. As you said, it's something that requires a multidisciplinary team and a critical care specialist where they're a medical intensivist, surgical intensivist, or neuro intensivist, or anesthesia intensivist are part of that, right? Um, you've been to the podcast before, you've been a guest before, so you know the drill and would it be okay if we close with some questions unrelated to stroke yes yes so in the last couple of years uh two to three years in the COVID era have there been any books that have really influenced you or that you gifted to others
0: yes so i uh i always talk about the uh, uh the stoic books and i read a couple of other uh you know stoic books uh you know besides marcus aurelius i think that was the last one that i recommended but uh um, I, I, I recently uh, went through, through training administration, and uh, I read a book that really like made uh, a difference in the way that I approach, um, you know, um, colleagues in general, and and, uh, um, and and family members in general, right? And the and, and, and the book is an administration book, right? For leadership, uh, but you know, I, I think it talks more about. Uh, than administration. It talks a lot about, you know, how to conduct yourself in general in, in life. And it's called um, The Servant. It's a book about leadership and the type of, of, of leadership that um, that I use now. It's called uh, Servant Leadership, right? And it inspired me to, you know, change the approach uh, uh, to, um, you know, just not administrative stuff, but also, uh, you know, uh, how I conduct myself in, in general with family and friends, et cetera. So very inspiring.
1: We'll definitely put that in the in the show notes. And I think it, it speaks to a couple of things, Fred. First is that um, when you think about uh, the purpose of leadership, right, it's not to serve mm-hmm. your own purpose or your own um, game, but it really is to make a difference in the life of others. And I think that whole approach of Correct. servant leadership is, is very important. It's interesting, that, and I know that we, we share a – an interest in in old uh, philosophy like you mentioned with marcos Aurelius, but i also had a chance to read it recently read um some a book by plutarch which is like over two thousand years old and it's about leadership and kind of the same idea like why would people um, go into leadership it's about making a difference and and serving the community or others and definitely i I have not read the servant but i like love the idea and we'll put it in the show notes and i i will definitely check it out the second question is uh, a, a variation of a question I've asked you in the past. But what do you believe to be true in, neur- in neurology or neurocritical care that most other intensivists don't believe?
0: I, I that's a that's a, a, a loaded question, Sergio. I think that um, you know I'm, I'm I'm you know as as, as you mentioned before, right? I'm, I'm training both, and you train me, by the way. So. Uh, um, you know, I've seen uh, a lot of differences in approach, okay? And uh, um, over the last 20 years, I think the field of neurocritical care has been trying to, uh, you know, demonstrate, right, that, that there is a, um, um, a role uh, for uh, for neurocritical uh, care specialists in, in the United States. So um, uh, I just have to tell you, right, that, um, that there is a difference of how we see uh, things as compared to people that have not trained or get exposed on, uh, on treating patients with, uh, with neurological injury. Right. And, um, and we just talked about some of them, right. Um, sort of like this very sophisticated, you know, you sort of like a calibrated way that you, that you mentioned, right. To approach this stuff. And I'm not saying right. That, you know, uh, we do better in the neuro ICU than in the uh, in the medical ICU i think that the difference in reality is the team okay it's not the uh, uh the provider because you could you could train you know in the ICU but if your nurses don't get it right if your residents don't get it right if your respiratory therapy don't get it right uh then you you're gonna have uh you know issues with managing these patients so i think the the difference right in in care right is the team Uh, that you're calling neurocritical care it's really not the the provider. However, right, um, when you look at the literature, right, I I would uh, actually uh, uh, suggest the the listeners, right, of the podcast to look at the latest JAMA article on neurocritical care uh, that basically shows the differences in the outcomes, right, on neurocritical care patients being treated by a team of neurocritical care providers.
1: We'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. <laughs> and, and, and what's I'll super what's super interesting, uh, Fred, is that the concept of the team, right, translates yeah. to other areas that has been studied. There's a study that, that I have often quoted and showed when I talk about team building, the science behind team building, that looks at CT surgeons that operate at more than one hospital. And traditionally, the belief is that the number of cases a CT surgeon has done correlates with their outcomes. But what's very interesting is that that number of cases does not translate from hospital to hospital, which means that at the end of the day, what really matters is not the the independent surgeon, but the team that works with him at a given place. And I think it it, it extrapolates exactly to, to what you were saying, which is, which is great. And I have not seen this JAMA article. I have not read it at least. So I'm going to be very interested in picking that up as well. So I will put it in the show notes. And, uh, and again, that the final the final um, question, just to close, Fred, what would you want every intensivist to know? It could be a quote or fact or just a thought.
0: I think that um, you know, as as a critical care physician, right? Um, I, I I think the concept of um, of, of plasticity, right, when you are dealing with. Uh, uh, neurological injury, right, is something that you need to think about, um, uh, you know, when you're treating these patients, right, uh, historically, right, we've been very nihilistic about, uh, you know, treating these patients for, you know, whatever biases we have had, you know, uh, it, it could be personal biases or, or professional biases, right, but the concept of neuroplasticity and secondary neurological injury, you know, which is what we have, we have discussed here in the podcast, right, how to prevent that stuff, right, you know, it's, you know, an important concept because it will transform the way that you look at uh, a neurological injury, right? If you treat these patients, right, um, uh, appropriately, right, if you um, deliver interventions that are associated with um, neuroprotection, right, and we talked about some of them in, in for ischemic stroke, right, you will see down the road, if you have the chance, right, how those patients, you know, uh, recover. So um, as as critical care doctors, we don't have that much of of experiencing patients in the clinic or stuff like that, right? But if if you believe me, these patients will surprise you, right, if you treat them appropriately. So, you know, what I would like everyone to know, right, is that, you know, being nihilistic, perhaps upfront, it's not a good idea, right? You still have a couple of days or or, or hours, right, to determine, right, uh, where the patient is going in terms of uh, recovery or not, right? And um, and being pessimistic from perhaps, uh, in my opinion, um, not a good idea, right? Yeah, sometimes you see it clearly, black and white, right? Or, you know, uh, yeah, the patient's not going to do great, right? Uh, but sometimes, you know, you just have to give the patient time, right? And they will recover.
1: And that's a great place to stop because I do think that, especially with neuro patients, um, people who are not trained in neurology, who, like myself, who don't see patients long-term, might have a overly nihilistic approach to what they see initially, and you're right. I mean, even the initial TPA studies, part of the problem in adoption was that the real effects were 90 days post, right? Not necessarily in, in the in the hospitalization. So we we failed to to appreciate that it might be a a big difference for that patient. Fred, always a pleasure to have you on. We'll definitely have you back on soon. And uh, now that um, knock on wood, uh, COVID seems to be. Uh, less of an issue. I'm sure that we will cross paths in person um, soon. So look forward to talking with you in person as well. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sounds transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.